Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Cases Quiz Vault is now up and running on the EM Cases website. More than a thousand MCQs garnered from the 125 or so main episode podcast for EM knowledge the best way you can. Just sign up and build whatever custom quiz you want by episode or by medical field and see how you do compared to the rest of the EM community. It is really test enhanced learning at its pinnacle and it's all free. And there are a few spots left for Podcast Camp. If you are thinking of starting a podcast or want to up your podcast skills or you know anyone else who does, let them know. My team and I will personally coach you for two days of hands-on intensive medical podcast production fun. It's in Toronto, September 21st and 22nd. Podcastcamp.org is the place to go to register and find out more. Now on to burn injuries. In 2013, a rodeo clown from Texas named Casey Wagner claimed he was struck by lightning twice in the same day while attending an event called Rednecks with Paychecks. Now, there's a sentence I never thought I'd utter on the podcast or in general. Now, luckily, Casey was medically cleared and discharged from his local hospital with no apparent injuries. But not all victims of lightning strikes are so lucky. In this podcast, we're delving into the world of burns and electrical injuries. These are trauma patients that are firmly in the jurisdiction of emergency medicine. Now, while these topics are typically tucked neatly away at the end of your EM textbooks, in this main podcast episode, we're showing them the love that they deserve. We see burn patients in the ED more than you might think, like half a million annual visits in the States alone. Now, I know most of these are relatively minor burns, but it turns out that there's a lot of room for improvement in our management, not only of the patients with minor burns, but with the critically ill burn patients as well. In fact, a systematic review and meta-analysis published in November 2018 concluded that there are many elements of ED care that could be improved. Estimation of burn size, unnecessary endotracheal intubation, overestimation and underestimation of fluid resuscitation volumes, forgetting to monitor or preserve core temperature, inadequate analgesia, and inadequate or wrong wound dressings. And ideally, we should be as comfortable with burn management of the critically ill patient as we are with ACS management. I know that I didn't have a real good approach to the sick burn patient or electrical injury patient before I started researching for this podcast, and I had forgotten a lot of key management points since my training. Even if your memory is better than mine, and it probably is, and you remember all that you learned about burns in your training, there are quite a few new things to know about burn management, especially when it comes to formulas we use to estimate burn size and fluid requirements. Plus, there's a lot of myth-busting to be had. So, to help update us on the latest in burn management, I have the pleasure and honor to introduce you all to the incredible burn expert, Dr. Joel Fish. Dr. Fish has been a burn surgeon for more than 20 years, He's the director of the Sick Kids Burn Unit and the former director of the Sunnybrook Adult Burn Unit in Toronto. Welcome, Joel. Hello, and thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And back on EM Cases, it's been way too long since uh, episode 38, I think it was, for uh, ENT emergencies. 
one of our regular all-star faculty at the EM Cases course, EM doc at Credit Valley Hospital and St. Joseph's Health Center in Toronto, educator extraordinaire, Dr. Maria Vankovic. Welcome back. Thanks, Anton. Happy to be here. Good. So, Maria, you'll be teaching at the EM Cases course coming up in June this year, right? That's right. June 24th. Great. Well, I'm thinking maybe next year, maybe we'll add burden electrical injuries to the EM Cases course. What do you think? I think that's a great idea. No bias. (laughs) All right. Let's jump into our first case. A two-year-old boy comes in with his mother after grabbing his mother's curling iron that morning. He's otherwise healthy and immunizations are up to date. His mother tried to place ice immediately on the burn to his palm, but he couldn't tolerate it. He's screaming and he's crying and he's tachycardic and he's miserable when you see him and his right palm and fingers are red and blistering. There are no other burns on his body, no bruises, no other signs of trauma. So this isn't your typical trauma case, but I think it's important to remember that we need to approach burns as we do any other trauma patient and include a primary and secondary survey. And this is especially important to ensure that we don't miss non-accidental trauma. We covered non-accidental injury extensively in episode 108 on pediatric physical abuse, but I think it's important to review here as well. So what are some of the features of burns that increase the likelihood that the burn you see in the ED was a non-accidental injury? So there's certainly some characteristics of the actual burn that should make you more suspicious. So, for example, if you've got immersion burns, um, particularly if they've got well-demarcated lines or patterns on the feet and hands or buttocks, for example, that should really make you suspicious that this could be non-accidental. You should also think about burns in the shape of hot objects, such as an iron. um, And, of course, multiple cigarette burns would be very suspicious as well for abuse. When I try to teach this area, I will always say, forget about what you're going to see. Listen to what they tell you. And the first step in this area is to just make sure that the story fits the pattern. Now, in the emergency room, when things are heightened and they're excited and the kid's screaming or whatever's going on, sometimes it's a little hard to get that story and you might have to go back a few times and you might have to really, you know, to tease that out and to get them calm and to understand. But what I always say, and really, you don't even need to be a medical practitioner. You look at the pattern of the burn and ask yourself, does it fit the story? The examples that you gave are perfect of the sharp lines and, you know, people come in, oh, it was a cooking accident or I touched a curling iron. You'll look at that child's hand and you will get a pretty quick idea of whether that could or could not be a curling iron. And it's really kind of that simple. Absolutely. Uh, You want to get that story and make sure it fits and that it also is compatible with the child's level of development. And that's the second main thing, making sure we have a good sense of the developmental milestones. And although that sounds easy, sometimes it can be hard to tell, but the obvious ones are easy. So the child that's not walking, that would make you suspicious depending on what story is being told. A child that is in the parent's arms under the age of six months, mostly dependent, those are also stories that have to fit the pattern. And as you go up through the ages, and by the time you get to five, it's sort of, you know, the the world is your oyster. It can be just about anything. But sticking to the developmental milestones is hugely important. Let's continue with the case here. So again, mom tells you that she tried to put ice on the burn. And this kind of brings up what the best first aid for burns is. My understanding is that applying ice is not a good move. What is the best first aid for burns? So, right. So the problem with ice is that it causes severe vasoconstriction, and that can actually deepen the burn. The best first aid is actually cool running water, ideally for 20 minutes, um, but for at least 10 minutes. And studies have shown that it can actually 
reduce the depth of the burn. So it, in addition to significantly reducing pain and edema, it can decrease the inflammatory response, and it's been shown to improve the speed of wound healing. So ideally, you want to do it right away, but it might provide some benefit up to one hour. And I don't know, Joel, I've, I've read in some places that maybe even up to three hours. I agree. So uh, from a practical point of view, there are parts of the world, particularly in the United Kingdom, where they have shown unequivocally that if you get good first aid early, they do better. And when you think of the skull burns, this is 100%. And what you describe is exactly the way you do it. But simple is best, cold or room temperature water running. And the length of time, some people say as long as they're symptomatic, you continue it. But for sure, the, short, the shortest duration is 20 minutes. 20 minutes is a long time to be running a tap. And most people say that they were doing it for an hour when, in fact, you know, the time is, is always much less than what they think. Also, it's just good from an emergency physician perspective to ask what kind of first aid was applied so that you can predict how the burn's going to heal. Because if they did, you know, an hour straight of cool water, then you know that they're already on the way to healing. So one of the one of the interesting things that we've noticed recently, especially with the internet, especially over the past 10 years, is people quickly turn on their phones and they look up quick first aid for burns. And actually, there are a number of things out there that are harmful. And if I had to choose one, highlight for people that are listening, toothpaste. Toothpaste contains high levels of fluoride. Fluoride is a very permeable ion. That means when the skin has been burned and the barrier is broken, the fluoride can penetrate the skin. Normally, if I put toothpaste on your skin, nothing's going to happen. You're going to smell like mint. But there are people, and they take toothpaste, they put it all over, and you've now taken a skull burn, and you converted it into a chemical burn. And I can tell you that we have seen more than a couple of these coming in, and we have children with burns that should just heal on their own that wind up getting surgery on the basis of toothpaste alone. There are lots of remedies that are out there. I could name every organic substance that can be put on a burn has been put on a burn. Toothpaste has got, got to be the number one item that we see now that we're trying to like get a little bit of messaging out there that we don't know where it came from, but it definitely does not and has no role in first aid. All right. Ban toothpaste for first aid and keep Good. it simple, <laughs> cold running water for at least 20 minutes. Yeah. Now, this patient's screaming and yelling. They need pain control. We've talked about pain control in previous episodes, but I think it's worth reiterating here. Dr. Ivankovic, how would you try and settle this patient's uh, pain and anxiety from the top? So first of all, I think it's really, really important that we treat their pain and we treat it as soon as possible. So I am a huge fan of intranasal fentanyl, and it, it works quickly and it's very effective. Uh, on top of that, I'll certainly give my Tylenol or my acetaminophen and my ibuprofen because that will last a bit longer. But I know that's not going to kick in right away, and it's not usually enough, especially if I've got a screaming, crying child and I want to try and examine their burns. So I and fentanyl is definitely my first go-to um, if for some reason I I'm not going to use iron fentanyl in that child. Um, I My second choice would be ketamine. All right. Yeah, I understand there was a recent trial, actually, that compared intranasal fentanyl and intranasal ketamine, and they were equally effective in decreasing pain scores, uh, but ketamine had slightly more side effects. So, yeah. yes, that was uh, on fractures. Um, and you're right. Uh, there was greater rates of sedation and dizziness with the iron ketamine. Okay. But it's definitely an option. All right. So, iron uh, fentanyl. I suppose if there's a, a distal extremity burn that's really bad and the patient's in a lot of pain, a nerve block is an option as well. I know all the, the POCUS fans out there would, would be advocating for that. 
burns are painful. That is not for debate. The, the treatments that you suggest are exactly what we like wish for. And actually, when we go and verify burn centers, we look for the time from when a child's admitted to the emergency room till the time they first receive pain medication. And in all cases, it should be less than 60 minutes. That's a pretty generous number because burns are painful. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of PTSD connected to burn and untreated pain. Okay. So this is a huge topic. And when you look at survivors from burns, children, adults, across the gamut, and you look at any kind of outcome, whatever your outcome you want to look, did they go to work? What do they remember? The memory of pain is the number one predictor of how people do in the end. If you had to choose one variable, of course, there's many things, your job, your education, all kinds of other things that influence you, your family. But if you, things that you can measure, if people have good pain control and if they have been offered that through their stay, their outcomes are always better, irrespective of what you measure. It is the number one vital sign. Once we know, and we're not, we're talking about a, a child here, so this is not a, a unstable vital signs, temperature, fluid resuscitation. Pain is the number one vital sign. Absolutely. And permanence of memory of pain is huge predictor of how, how people do in future unrelated to their burns, actually. And that's even for burn healing, is my understanding. Yes. And a paper recently that came out, which has challenged, and they actually showed that the wounds heal quicker as a secondary phenomenon of well-treated pain. Nobody understands that mechanism, but that was unequivocally shown. Wow. So treat pain aggressively in the emergency department early on. Intranasal fentanyl is your go-to. Let's move on to how to assess and classify the burn itself. So this is important because it helps dictate your management, essentially. And I understand that we shouldn't be using the old first, second, and third degree classification anymore, that the nomenclature has changed a bit. So before we get into the new nomenclature, the, the new terminology, we should, though, talk a little bit about the skin anatomy and the pathophysiology of a burn. So, Dr. Fish, can you briefly review a bit about the anatomy of the skin and what happens when it's burnt? So, the relevant anatomy of the skin as it relates to burn is, really has to do with the fact that the outer layer are epidermal cells. Those are the cells that are constantly repopulating people with dry skin. You can see them shedding their outer layer of their skin. There's a very thin layer of stratum corneum on the outside, which gives sort of minimal protection. And the actual epidermis itself, as you go to different parts of the body, it's quite thin. Like we're talking well less than a millimeter in most areas, like well less than that. And then you very quickly get to what I, I often describe as the smart part of the skin. That's the dermis. The dermis is the brains of the skin. And the reason I say that is it has the sweat glands, hair follicles. It is the, it's the dermis of the deeper layer of the skin that really provides the function, the sensory, the sweating, et cetera. And so sort of the functional smart layer and how it relates to the burn is if you just sort of think of it that way, if you've applied heat to skin and all of those structures are made of protein, it's a bit of an oversimplification, but it's just protein. What happens when you heat protein? Like when you have an egg, you drop an egg in water and it coagulates. So if you take heat in the form of electricity, we're going to talk about a scald burn, a curling iron, whatever, whatever, when it comes in contact with the protein, if it's there long enough and it's hot enough, the proteins coagulate, and that's the first part of the injury. The second part of the injury, as you get deeper, starts to involve the blood supply. It's a bit of an oversimplification, but it's actually true. And if you sort of 
visualize it in that way. It's a protective layer. The outside's just sort of lying there cells that are, are sealing our body so we don't evaporate. And the inner layer, which has the function, as you go deeper, you affect more function of the skin. So that's how I sort of describe the anatomy. So now that we kind of understand a little bit about that, that can help us understand why there's this sort of new terminology when it comes to the different kinds of burns. Could you go over for us um, how we should be classifying burns and why it's important to understand? The way that burns are classified, there are only two terms that have any kind of clinical meaning, the partial thickness and the full thickness burn. And that's why they introduced the new classification. The partial thickness can be superficial or deep, and a full thickness means the skin's burned and you need surgery. We do not consider the superficial burn, which is like a sunburn. It's in the classification, but it's not counted. Clinically, it's not treated. So all burns that come in that are going to require treatment are either partial thickness or full thickness, period. The classification itself was re I'll say reinvented, but the reason it's new, it actually relates a lot more to what happens in the burn center. The burns that are seen in the emergency room are largely unclassified. When you see them in the emergency room, you cannot, nor can you ever tell how deep the burn is, with the exception of the obvious full thickness burn. If I showed a full thickness burn to someone who's never seen a burn before and said, do you think this is going to need surgery? They would say, yes, they're obvious. They're leathery, they're white, they're black, whatever. Everybody recognizes those. It's these partial thickness, which take often days or weeks to recognize. So in the emergency room, the classification is important, of course, but you will never be making a treatment in the emergency room based on that depth because it's all counted together. Partial and full thickness burn is all counted together to determine the size of the burn. And that's what's important in the emergency room. Let's go further into that and clarify there. So the depth of the burn will change over time, over days. It does change over time. Yeah. And and it can take 10 to 14 days until you sometimes know the depth of the burn, depending on how it happened. Right. So I guess the big pitfall there then is in the emergency department saying, oh, this is just a superficial partial thickness burn that doesn't require surgery. So we can just give them a little you know, bit of ointment and they can go home and follow up with their family doctor. That's a huge, huge problem. So we have to be very careful about ever falsely reassuring a patient or a family member that this is going to heal fine uh, because we have no idea. And that is a dynamic wound. It's going to change over the next 48 to 72 hours and, as Joel was saying, possibly even longer. So what we see is not what we get necessarily. So it's really important to counsel them about, uh, you know, the reassessments. We'll be able to tell more once this wound is reevaluated. So is it fair to say then that Anything except a superficial sunburn-like burn really should be followed up in in a couple of days to see the eventual thickness of the burn. That's absolutely right. And and this is, I, I have to repeat what Maria is talking about. At our end, if I'm going to get 10 wishes at the end of this show, Joel, these are the 10 things you'd like to change in the emergency room. This is, if it's not number one, it's number two. And it's that if we cannot suggest to the families how deep these burns are, expert burn providers, somebody with 10 or more years of experience trying to predict the depth of the burn within the first 24 hours, the best study has shown that you're 
correct about 60% of the time. And, you know, the take-home message for students and healthcare providers, if you see a burn and you're seeing it within the first 24 hours, you should, of course, say how big the area is. And you can recognize and say the burn itself is a partial thickness area. But in terms of commenting on how deep it is and what you're going to see in a couple of days, it is really, really hard to know. And even expert providers can't tell you. All right. So big take-home point number one is that it is very inaccurate what your assessment is of the depth of the burn in the emergency department. Even the best experts aren't even close to 100% accurate. And these things change over time. And so when you're speaking to patients and their families about the prognosis, it really is important to explain to them that these things do change over time and that we're not going to know for a few days and that all these patients, except for the ones with the sunburn, really should have follow-up with an expert in burn management. Yeah, you know, I've asked myself over the years, like, why is this? Like, why why is it that people are continually coming in and then we take a look three to five days later and we're sort of gasping and the families are looking at us say, that's not what they told us. I do not believe that all the emergency room caregivers out there are just, you know, that not that knowledgeable. When I have an opportunity to show slides, I could show you slide after slide of someone within 12 hours of their burn injury. Truth is, they all look actually not that bad. So if you're an emergency room physician and you're sitting there and you're looking at it, they may not actually look that bad. And so I think it's coming from a good place. But but the problem is and the learning is really need to hold back and, and not to give information to a family that predicts what, what you see. You're right. They actually don't look that bad when they come in. But I could show you slide after slide. And when we do the emergency room teaching, we show a couple of cases, day one, day three, day five. And people just sit there with their eyes coming out of their head like, oh, my God, I never imagined that's what it would look like five days later. All right. So- Dr. Fish, you had mentioned how important it is to assess the total body surface area of the burn. And that's the next thing I'd like to talk about is how to assess that. And when I was training, we learned about the rule of nines. And it seems like that seems to be still a common thing that I see done in the emergency department to assess the total body surface area of a burn. What's wrong with the rule of nines? And what is the best way to estimate total body surface area? I sort of laugh area? when I get to teach the rule of nines. So the the sort of hilarious part of this is have you ever in your life imagined that someone could burn themselves in 9% increments? It's sort of just a bit of a crazy <laughs> idea. And what it's based on, it was actually a kind of an interesting thought in that the body surface of area of your arm is roughly half the body surface area of your leg. And the, the front of your trunk is roughly about the surface area of your leg. That's kind of where it came from, but it is absolutely impractical and ridiculous because people don't burn themselves in 9% increments. So it is virtually not helpful, but we do have a good alternative, and that's the, the hand rule. And you know, it's very simple, and the beauty of this is I've had the opportunity to be on a, having a conversation with somebody hundreds of miles away, and I say to them, just take the hand of that patient, whether they're a year old or nine months old or 75 years old, and look at the size of their hand, including the fingers. It's roughly 1% of your body surface area, and just stand back, and you close one eye, and you just count up, one, two, three, four, five, and you will very accurately predict the size of the burn. I've been doing it for 20 plus years. If you've never done it before and you're a medical student or a, a new nurse in an emergency room and I describe that to you, you, they will come back and say, 
I think it's a 13% burn and I can guarantee you they'll come all the way down and with 20 years of experience, there'll be a 12, 13 or a 14% burn. Highly accurate, easy to teach and something that you can describe to people hundreds of miles away. Yeah, so it's just important to remember that it's the patient's own hand and this is more accurate for burns under 15% or for burns over 85% where you're really just measuring the non-burned portion. Uh, and I had to agree with the rule of nines. It's it's outdated. Um, we do have better rules out there. The problem with the rule of nines is that it consistently overestimates by like 20%. And that's huge. And that can lead to over-resuscitation, which has a lot of complications and can be just as deadly as under-resuscitation. Now, the other rule that we can use for our burns over 15% is the Lund and Browder chart. And this has been found to have the highest accuracy and intraurator reliability. And you can easily find this online, but we can maybe put a copy uh, with the show notes. And unlike the rule of nines, the London Browder chart takes into consideration the age of the patient and decreasing percent body surface for the head and increasing percent body surface for the legs as a child ages, making it much more accurate for pediatric patients. But even for the adults, it's significantly more accurate than the rule of nines. All right. So our choices are the London Browder chart. Uh, we'll have it in the show notes or just the rule of palms, which for a kid is very accurate at 1% of their entire hand surface, including their fingers. And uh, for the adult, it's slightly less than that, maybe 0.8%. But I think practically speaking, for 1% for all comers of the, of the actual patient's hand. And it's also important to remember that the rule of palms and the London Browder chart are only for burns that are partial or full thickness, not the superficial sun-like sunburn kind of burns. In the children, one of the most common things that we see when you get a skull burn, which is the most common, involving, say, the shoulder, or the abdomen, the chest, there will be actually quite a superficial area from the time they're at home till the time that they're in the emergency room. And but at about four to six hours later, there'll be an area that will just disappear. That it, it was very superficial and it was red and it gets counted. And then by the time we see them, you know, maybe 10 or 12 hours later, it's gone. And this is actually quite common in children. And so we'll often get, oh, it's a 10, 15% burn. And they come in and we see them, they're 5%. That's a very common scenario, but we're aware of that at our end. And it is something that's often underappreciated. Okay. All right. So the superficial burns definitely don't count those. I mean, I find that one of the practical things that I've done with uh, my burn patients is I just take a few photographs and text those to the burn specialist. I'm so you know, glad you brought that up. That is our number one way that we, if there is any possible way, parents have pictures, their relatives have pictures, the emergency room have pictures, and that is such a good point. I'm so glad you brought it up. So just to make sure that that everyone is clear on this, you're going to be counting the partial burns and the full thickness burns. Period period, not the superficial burns. So I think that just brings up, we should dig a little bit deeper into how to differentiate superficial burns from from partial thickness burns, even though, like we said, it's going to change over time in terms of what kind of fluid resuscitation we want to do based on the total body surface area. I think it's important. So could you just clarify again, what you see, how we can identify partial thickness burns? When somebody comes in in the acute stages, and if you're seeing them within hours of the injury, and when I mean within hours, less than two hours, if there's an area that looks like a sunburn, it blanches, it has no blisters, it's painful, 
and it really does appear like a sunburn, it's likely a very superficial burn and it's not the area to be counted. The other way that you can differentiate, which may not always be so practical, is if they're sitting in your emergency room for a couple of hours by the time they're seen and assessed, if you look at something that is a sunburn, they rapidly disappear literally within hours. So if it's still there three or four hours after the injury has occurred, then you can assume it's no longer a sunburn and it is, in fact, a partial thickness burn and should be counted because the really superficial burns, they disappear extremely quickly. You had mentioned the painful burn. My understanding is generally that a full thickness burn won't be painful. I mean, is that sort of an accurate kind of thing in terms of your assessing the depth of the burn? So where this comes from is if you burn your skin all the way through, so the protein's coagulated and it's affected the nerves, and if you touch that part of the skin and compare it to an area, contralateral area, area on the other side, it will have less sensation. So that's true. But the edges of those burns and the injury itself is horribly painful. And the reason I I don't want to belabor this point, when these patients come through the hospital and then they go through and then they're seen and assessed and they're through their rehabilitation and these cases often wind up in some sort of medical legal proceeding or through a workers' compensation board and somebody will say, oh, I didn't know because you know, they, I didn't expect it because um, full thickness burns are not painful. There's this implication that they don't hurt and it's just 100% wrong. There's tons of live tissue all around. So Yes, full thickness burns. The skin itself that's been burned does not feel normal, but the burn itself is still quite painful. It's a a really important point. That's right. So definitely don't use pain to exclude a full thickness burn. Got it. All right. So just to review a little bit of what we talked so far, the best first aid for burns is cool running water for at least 20 minutes, not ice. It's probably a good thing to know the terminology of burns, the new terminology that is. So superficial is like a sunburn that rapidly disappears. All the other burns are either partial or full thickness, and those all require follow-up because they change over time and can get deeper over time. Remember that the partial thickness burns are divided into superficial partial thickness and deep partial thickness. And then there's the full thickness burns, which are the obvious white or black burns. And remember that the big pitfalls are, like we just said, that the presence of pain cannot be used to exclude full thickness burns. And probably the most important point, because burns are dynamic wounds, they can get deeper over the next few days. You won't know the thickness for sure until 48, 72 hours later, sometimes up to five days. So be very cautious of falsely reassuring patients or parents that the burn is only superficial and that it won't require surgery or that it'll just get better on its own quickly. And finally, forget about the rule of nines. It's old school. We're either going to be using the rule of palms, which includes the fingers, and that's a 1% uh, of the body, the patient's hand, and do not include the superficial sunburn in that. Or you can use the Lund and Browder chart. And these are the new standard for all burns greater than 15% total body surface area. Let's move on to wound care. I see a huge variety of practice here in terms of 
how wounds are taken care of initially in the emergency department. Dr. Fish, what does the latest evidence tell us about the best ED wound care when it comes to burns? The basic principle of, of the initial dressing that is being placed on the burn wound is something that should be cheap, it should be easy to apply, it should have some kind of antimicrobial action if possible, and it's something that will allow the next provider, whoever that is, to evaluate the wound. So the market now in wound care is flooded with all kinds of products, with silver-based products and creams and lotions and ointments, and it's, it's endless. I get one every month new across my desk of a new burn wound care product. In the emergency rooms, when we get called, the simplest, safest, and easiest dressing to apply is a nonstick dressing with either polysporin or Vaseline. Vaseline's our number one choice in children. People tend to have polysporin hanging around. It's nonstick. You put any kind of nonstick layer on, a Bactergras, that go by Gelinet, all the different names, something that's cheap and cheerful and easy to apply. And as the burns get bigger, this principle is even more important. I love the fact that all we have to remember is polysporin and a nonstick, sort of like Mepitel is my go-to. So Gelinet or Adaptic would be other options. Uh, so the great thing about that, it's not painful when you remove. And polysporin, all our departments essentially carry. The one thing that we don't have to think about anymore is using flamazine, which is a brand name for silver sulfadiazine. And I think many of us will remember that's that thick white cream that comes in a tube. And actually, it's been shown to delay wound healing and can actually increase infection. And it also should be changed every 12 to 24 hours. Uh, so really not practical. And Joel, I've heard you say this before, um, but I love your mantra of daily dressings are dead. So the other great thing about doing a polysporin mepitel dressing is that could stay on for 48, even 72 hours until this patient is reassessed. They don't need to come back to your department in 24 hours for a dressing change. That's just putting them through unnecessary pain. So if they're going to be seen in your burn clinic tomorrow, the day after, um, and possibly, you know, three days later, that same dressing can stay on. What you said, Maria, is the daily dressings are dead. We stopped doing daily dressings more than 10 years ago in our children. The pain benefits of stopping the daily dressings are beyond anything that I can cover in this podcast. All right. So the bottom line is you want to use a nonstick dressing, use something cheap. You got to keep the wound moist. And so a Vaseline-based ointment with antibacterial properties like polysporin is your go-to. Everyone's got that in their department. Keep it simple. It's going to be on for about three days when they're then assessed by the plastic surgeon or, or, or the burn specialist. And then there's all kinds of dressings that can last for a lot longer than, than one or two days that they'll be putting on. Definitely daily dressings are dead. Don't have these poor kids come back uh, and get tortured with daily dressings anymore. Next, I want to talk about cleaning the burns. So... Dr. Ivankovic, what is the best way to clean a burn in the ED? Some burns are really, really dirty. Most of them are, are relatively clean to begin with. How do you suggest that we clean these burns? So like you said, a lot of them are actually fairly clean when they come in. So from boiled water, from scald burns, those are pretty clean already. Uh, for the wounds that are uh, perhaps a little bit more dirtier, you can just use sterile water to 
uh, remove the debris. And you can just use a wet soapy washcloth with like a mild soap and gently wipe, but do not scrub the wound. And if you've got like a really dirty wound, you can consider using chlorhexidine, uh, but just make sure you stay away from iodine because it's cytotoxic. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Basic soap, soap and water. And if you don't have sterile water, you should just use plain, ordinary water. It is guaranteed going to be cleaner than what they came in with. And the only thing that we we get a little bit more stringent in terms of really wanting to wash is when organic products are involved. And in many parts of North America in particular and other parts of the world in the warmer times of the year where people get burned and then jump into fresh water. Fresh water in particular can be a real potent stimulator and produce a lot of bacteria that we don't usually see because of very organic. But, you know, they come in and they're relatively clean. You're absolutely right. Soap and water, wash, a gentle wash without scrubbing is really all that's required. All right. So that's the, the cleaning. Definitely avoid iodine. If they're really dirty, chlorhexidine is your go-to. And just mild soap and sterile water for the majority of these wounds. The next controversy that it seems like I remember getting into, you know, discussions many times over the last decade or so is, uh, and this question always comes up, is what to do with blisters. You know, on the one hand, theoretically, blisters would are protecting the underlying tissue from infection. On the other hand, you can't really tell what's going on under the, under the blister unless you, you de-roof the blister. So should we be debriding burn blisters or should we be leaving them intact? I hate this topic. This topic drives <laughs> me absolutely crazy. What do you think, Maria? Get rid of the blister. Absolutely. We had a debate at the American Burn Association about three years ago. We do these pro-con debates and try to do something where there's some equipoise or something that can be compared. And resoundingly at the end of this, there's usually 500 people in the audience, you know, who breaks the blisters and everybody put up their hand. You cannot evaluate the depth of the wound with dead skin on top. So that's one way to think about it. The teaching and where the leave the blister alone came from if you're out hiking and you don't have any dressings and you get a blister in your shoe and if you peel off that dead skin, you're now just going to have a painful open blister. That is very different than a blister from a burn. The three reasons that we teach people to remove the blisters. Number one, if the blister interferes with function, which they do, the children won't move and the adults won't move, they hover around their blister. If it interferes with function, you get rid of it. If you cannot evaluate the depth of the wound, you get rid of it. And if there's any sign of hemorrhage or infection, you get rid of the blister. There's a lot of issues with blisters. So number one, that dead skin, you got to get rid of it because it's a nidus for infection. And when you put your dressing on, you don't want to put it on the blister. You want it to come in contact with the actual burn below. So you want to de-roof it, better evaluate it, and put a proper dressing on. All right. So that actually brings us to how you're actually going to de-roof it. And so I guess there's lots of different ways of getting rid of the blister. What's the best way to get rid of the blister? So the easiest thing to do is just snip the top and use your tissue forceps to remove the roof. Okay. What what about the teeny tiny blisters? Like my understanding is that if they're less than like six millimeters, you can leave those. Yeah, I don't know where the size comes from, but let's go back to the three the three teachings of the blister. If they're really small and they're not interfering with function, you'll see the child using their hand. If they're 
isn't if it's so small that it's really not a consideration that it's it's that important. And you can usually judge that just looking at how they're using their usually digits, the hands and the feet, but could be other areas. And the third thing is as long as it's not hemorrhagic or obviously infected, and if it falls into those categories, little tiny blisters are perfect perfectly fine. They'll break on their own and they're usually, you know, of no clinical importance. All right. So generally speaking, we should be getting rid of blisters. It's pretty easy. Just snip the roof of them, debride them, um, and then important to apply the dressing to the burn underneath. The child that we're talking about, this pediatric burn that comes in with a curling iron, it's an example of a contact burn, high likelihood of a blister. And those little, that's a two-year-old, tiny little hands and tiny little blisters all across the palm. And that's the kind of thing that, um, you know, hand burns require expertise, actually. And most emergentologists, people with expertise and awareness in the emergency room, see something like that. And yes, it's easy to go snip blisters, but in those tiny little kids, you often need to sedate them. And even putting the dressing on can be so time consuming. There's a bit of a practical, there's a good practical area. You see lots of these, a simple nonstick dressing, cover up the hand, call your local burn center. You have two to three days to get the kid there. They have the abilities generally to sedate these children and sit there for a half an hour. You don't have time in the emergency room to sit there for half an hour, cutting away little blisters. So, And this, this case that you're talking about is like, I can almost picture it. And Dr. Fish, using the Palmer method to calculate the percent total body surface area, this child's burn on the palm is less than 1%. Should this child still be seen in a burn clinic or a general plastic surgery clinic for follow-up? You know, what are the strict criteria for calling a burn care provider? So you're in an emergency room and you can always call the burn center if you're not sure. There's always a regional burn center just about anywhere in the developed world. And even in the underdeveloped world, they have connections to burn centers. So you can, if you're not sure, you can always call it. In terms of strict criteria, and you're talking about a hand burn, this is the criteria of specialized areas. The hands, the face, the feet, and the perineum. They're small. They're all less than 1% body surface area. They're highly innervated. They're extremely painful, and they require specialized nursing. Whether this little two-year-old with a curling iron burn on his hand, he, he, he or she is not going to go into systemic shock or go, or require antibiotics, none of that. But the if I would challenge you to put on a proper dressing on a two-year-old hand that's going to stay there for a week, if this is not a skill that you're doing all the time, it's much harder than it looks. And so specialized areas, hands, face, feet, perineum, that gets you to a burn center, even though they're small, one, two, or three percent. And Anton, I think it's important for our listeners to realize that it's not adequate just to have them follow up in your local plastics clinic because it really is an issue of resources, expertise. There's a lot of counseling that goes around around burns um, and rehabilitation. So it's a very specialized area. And if you want your patient to really get the best management, um, you should be sending them to a burn center, especially for a hand burn. The other thing is we don't even know how deep these burns are. They might need surgery. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, uh, like you said, that you could imagine this child with blisters on their hand, and we just finished saying that anything but a, a superficial burn really should be followed up uh, in a burn center because we don't know eventually what their thickness is going to be and whether they might require surgery or not. So lots of reasons why this kid should go to a burn center in two or three days. Yes, 
All right, let's do a little review of wound care here for burns. First, you need to clean the wound. So sterile water is generally adequate to remove debris. Mild soap is great for wounds that aren't super dirty. For the super dirty wounds, use chlorhexidine, not iodine. Then make sure you remove the dead skin. Next, you're going to deal with the blisters. While the teeny tiny little blisters that are, you know, less than six millimeters, they can be left intact. But any bigger blisters uh, really should be removed for the variety of reasons we talked about. And you do this simply by snipping the top of the blister with sterile scissors, uh, then debriding the uh, devitalized tissue there. Then there's the dressing. There's a variety of dressing choices out there, but the key principles are to keep it simple and cheap and keep the wound moist. Just apply a petrolatum-based antibiotic ointment like polysporin on the dressing, not the skin, because it's painful if you do it directly to the skin. First put it on the dressing. As long as it's a nonstick dressing, you're good to go. Remember that flamazine is dead. Don't use it. And the nonstick dressing with the polysporin can be left on for up to 72 hours. And remember that daily dressings also are dead. Uh, So follow-up should be in about three days for all these kids, except the ones with just the sort of sunburn kind kind of burn. On to case number two. EMS brings in a 46-year-old male burn victim from an apartment fire. On arrival, he's a bit striderous and he's wheezing. His voice is hoarse and he has obvious burns to his face, neck, and torso. Nasal hairs are singed and there's soot everywhere. He's satting 88% on a non-rebreather. His heart rate is 110 and his blood pressure is 95 on 55. So we've got this middle-aged fire victim in your resuscitation room who's got a few worrisome airway breathing and circulation features. Dr. Vankovic, what's going to be your sort of general approach to the ED management of this patient? So I think one of the important things to remember with any burn patient is that they are a trauma patient first. So these patients can come in looking really impressive with severe burns, and sometimes it can be very hard, but you actually have to ignore them at first and manage this patient as you normally would a trauma patient. So you're going to do your primary and secondary survey as you normally would um, and deal with the burns later. Now, I think it's important to remember when it comes to trauma and burn patients specifically, like number one, we don't know what happened to this patient before the fire. We don't know what happened to them maybe trying to escape the fire. Did they fall downstairs? So we might not have a full history there. But uh, with burns, when patients do have a traumatic injury, more than half the time it's going to be a fracture. And about 25% of the time, so up to 25% actually, there could be a traumatic brain injury. Uh, So you definitely don't want to miss that. And for thoracic or abdominal injuries, the literature quotes anywhere from 4 to 24%. So make sure that you sort of have a high degree of suspicion and make sure that you are doing your thorough exam as you normally would for any trauma patient. The other thing that you have to think about a patient in a patient like this, as soon as they roll through the door, is carbon monoxide and cyanide poisoning. So again, this patient is a trauma patient and a tox patient first. So any patient with possible carbon monoxide poisoning is going to get 100% oxygen as soon as they arrive uh, to shorten that uh, half-life of carboxyhemoglobin. That's our kind of second huge big take-home point is that 
all these burn patients are really trauma and tox patients first. You kind of have to do a cognitive forcing strategy to kind of ignore the burn initially and go through your CABCs for your trauma. We talked about the resequencing of the trauma resuscitation in, in one of our recent episodes. And you need to be on the lookout, especially for fractures, traumatic pain injury, chest and abdominal injuries. Um, and you should be able to pick up all of these on your primary and secondary surveys, which you need to kind of go through. I guess the one thing that we always read about, especially with electrocution injuries, is the posterior shoulder dislocation, which is very easy to miss. You know, look for that light bulb sign on the on the x-ray. I've actually seen that twice. And electrical injuries are not that common. I have to tell you that the lived experience, if you're in the trauma bay and a major burn patient comes in the door, like this patient we're talking about, it is so difficult for you not to get drawn into the burn because they are horrible. They're visual. It's so easy to get sort of sucked into what you're seeing. And it's compounded when you see the electrical injuries as well. And we'll talk about that a bit. The other thing that adjusts your CABC general approach to a trauma patient a little bit is, like you had mentioned, many of these patients will have carbon monoxide and cyanide poisoning. They all need oxygen by non-rebreather immediately. And this is in the face of the current evidence that for most things like sepsis and MI and your blunt and penetrating trauma patients, that oxygen is actually harmful. Um, so just if you have a trauma patient that has a serious burn as well, especially in a fire with smoke inhalation, you really want to be applying as close to 100% oxygen as you can to, to that patient. If we just step back for a second and we talk about a patient that has been picked up wherever and they're coming in with a diagnosis of a major burn and smoke inhalation injury. So there's a few things before we get to the airway and before we get to the assessment, assessment and we're just talking about the story. So there's a big divider here. So people that were trapped in a closed space, if you can get that history, that's essential. Trapped in a closed space for a minute, you will have some form of smoke inhalation injury regardless of what was burning. And if you can get that history, that, that will put you already into another spectrum as it relates to prognosis, as it relates to the need to prophylactically intubate. And it's, it's, it's a big issue. The issue of cyanide poisoning is a really small but related issue that gets a lot of traction these days, and we can talk about that. But the, the diagnosis of smoke inhalation injury can be made in the emergency room if you have a good history of being trapped in a closed space. Conversely, if you have a really good history of someone not being trapped in a closed space, even in severe explosions and burns and with major thermal injury, the likelihood of smoke inhalation injury goes way, way down and the treatments for smoke inhalation disappear exponentially. And so that step before they even get in and when you get the call, that's a real simple, easy thing to drive. If I had one question that I'm asking when I'm on the phone with the our agencies that send them our way is if I can drill on one issue, one detail, it's were they trapped in a closed space? Were they in that? And one minute is long enough. It's frightening. If you've ever been in a burning building that is filled with smoke, a minute is an incredibly long period of time. Incredibly long. Wow. So we're going to dig much deeper into smoke inhalation injuries. Um, but I want to talk a little bit more generally about approach to airway. Now, most of us were trained to be 
pretty aggressive when it comes to the decision to intubate the burn patient for airway protection with the thinking that many of these patients will end up obstructing their airway on the way to the burn center. And my understanding is that we actually tend to kind of over-intubate burn patients. So Dr. Ivankovic, what are the indications to intubate a burn patient? So I think we definitely have to know the history there. Um, You know, if there was an inhalational injury that is managed a little bit differently, uh, but in general in burns, I think we have all been trained to not delay intubation in burn victims, but I think we've actually become overly cautious to the detriment of some of our patients. In fact, one-third of burn patients are unnecessarily intubated in the ED. So I'm talking more about patients that are coming in with, let's say, facial burns. So just facial burns alone is not an indication for intubation. Likewise, singed nasal hairs is not an indication for intubation. You have to look at a whole constellation of findings and symptoms. Um, and I think, you know, I've heard from some some burn surgeons that, uh, you know, they, they receive patients that are intubated and all they had were, you know, superficial partial thickness burns to their face and no issues with their airway. And now they've got issues with their intubation and being on a ventilator. Um, so we're causing all these complications. So I think it's just really important to think about why you really need to intubate that person right now. And there's lots of indications that you will, but if this, if you've got a patient that is satting well, seems to have no signs of respiratory distress, you know, it's not necessarily an inhalational injury, um, there's not big burns around their neck that you're worried is going to constrict their neck, um, you probably got some time to think about it. You don't necessarily have to rush into it. And you might put out a call to your burn surgeon and get their advice. Excellent point. I remember being taught that, you know, any facial burn, anything around the mouth, anything around the neck, that they should be intubated. So it makes total sense that a lot of those patients that just have isolated facial burns uh, that aren't, you know, covering the whole lower half of their face or their entire neck, you know, those ones we do worry about, that they probably don't need to be intubated. And I think it's a great point that you usually have some time and just to speak with your your burn specialist to to see whether they they think they, the patient should be intubated. So, and you know, if you've got a patient that's got massive burns, you know, over 50 to 60%, that person's going to need to be intubated. They're going to be getting a lot of fluids. They're going to have a lot of pain. So you can go right ahead and intubate that patient. But if you've got someone who's, you know, 25% burns, looking pretty good, you're going to be sending them out and, you know, they're 20 minutes to your burn center, Again, you might not have to intubate that person. Um, if this is a patient that's got underlying lung disease, poor reserve, uh, you're transferring them over an hour, then you might think about intubating them. So what would be the reasons to intubate for an inhalation injury? What, what are the things that you're looking for? I mean, you know, there's the really obvious things like they're striderous and they're hoarse and they're drooling. Uh, what, what kind of other things do you, do you look for that would think, you know what, I think I need to intubate this patient now? Yeah. So, I mean, for the case that you you presented, absolutely, this patient's going to need intubation. And I think we have to be very cautious with inhalational injuries because they have a pretty high mortality. So some sources will say up to 30%. And that increases the greater their TBSA of uh, burn. So if you've got a patient who's got a story for an inhalational injury, but they're breathing fine, they look comfortable, they're not requiring extra oxygen, you've probably got a few hours. You can observe them. And there's a good portion of those patients that won't require intubation. And if they do, it may not be till 12 hours later. And that won't be necessarily in your department. Now, you can make yourself a little bit more comfortable if you can take a look in their airway. So if you've got an NP scope, for example, and you're comfortable using it, uh, you can take a look down. And if the supraglottic area looks beefy red and sooty, 
then you're probably going to have to prepare for intubation. Um, but if it looks good, that's reassuring. You can also consider using a video laryngoscope. And if you see edema, charred mucosa, or soot, you're also going to be pretty worried. But if you're looking in and it looks pristine and the patient is satting well, looking well, you've probably got a lot of time. One of the early clinical signs that is typically taught as being sort of ominous is a new onset of hoarseness. So if you're in your emergency room and you've had the tincture of time, the ability to evaluate and reevaluate, which as you were talking about, a new onset of hoarseness is something that you really want to pay attention to as a single clinical sign, more so than facial burns, more so than singed nasal hairs. The other thing that I just want to go back to is that when we're talking about reasons for intubation in a patient with smoke inhalation injury who comes in with a consistent history, similar to the trauma patient where you can get drawn into the burn, don't forget your basics. You intubate anybody that's not protecting their airway for any reason. And that that is obviously because of the overlapping trauma. So anyone that meets the usual criteria for intubation, which means inability to protect your airway for whatever reason, they get intubated irrespective of the history of smoke inhalation injury. All right. So suffice to say that indications for endotracheal intubation include the usual things like the obtunded patients who aren't protecting their airway, those in respiratory failure that aren't responding to non-invasive treatments, but, you know, the big scary thing is that imminent threat of acute airway obstruction. So significant edema, blistering of the oropharynx, strider, new onset hoarseness, drooling, severe respiratory distress, deep burns to the neck or the whole lower face. Those are the reasons to intubate now. Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and that we can't, for all the other patients, the ones with nasal hairs that are singed and a little bit of soot around their mouth, those patients, we can wait a little bit. We can speak to our burn consultant and and then make a, a shared decision there. All right. And I love the tip of, you know, why not take an NP scope and just take a look down and then you know exactly what the airway looks like uh, and whether there's really any edema or threat. All of these things that you've talked about, about like reasons and the caution, 100% you are right. There are papers presented every year at our meeting about the over-intubation and over-triage of patients and being able to slow down and call your burn center, review the history and do your clinical assessment. These are things that absolutely should be done. So this patient sounds like the perfect candidate for an awake intubation. And we've got a surprise guest who we've flown in from Halifax via internet. I consider him the world's leading expert on awake intubation. Uh, he was referred to as Yoda at the last EM Cases course when it comes to airway issues. And he'll be at the June 24th EM Cases course leading a workshop on awake intubation. So Canada's airway guru, Dr. George Kovacs, let's hear what Dr. Kovacs has to say about which burn patients to consider an awake intubation on and how to go about the procedure of awake intubation in a burn patient. Anton, thanks for having me. Uh, to start off with, I want to agree with everything that's been uh, said uh, so far, and I, I really don't have uh, much to add to that. Perhaps two things. One is respect pending upper airway obstruction. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that the patient with a burn who's got a hoarse voice and who has Strider. Strider needs the ultimate amount of uh, respect um, because this is something that doesn't sort of dwindle and then ultimately something bad happens, they, they, they cruise along and then often they'll, they'll suddenly deteriorate. 
And before I get into talking about how I'd manage this patient and do an awake intubation, here's my rant. My rant is this, is that in emergency medicine, we become very comfortable with having one approach in our toolbox. And you can't call it a toolbox if you only have one thing in it. And that one thing that we have in our airway toolbox is an ability and comfort in doing a rapid sequence intubation. But it's something that's easiest for us um, to manage the airway, but not necessarily best for the patient. And the, the, the challenge is having and gaining the experience to do an awake intubation. Now think of it. You've got a patient that's presenting, it's a difficult airway, that now you're supposed to do a procedure you don't do very often um, that is technically more difficult than doing an RSI. And that's the setup. And so that we tend to have a bias and sometimes we explain a way to say, okay, it's safe to do an RSI in this patient. What I'm encouraging people to do is to get comfortable, fill your toolbox with more than just RSI, and have the skills to manage a range of patients, including the one that you're presenting here today. So that's my rant on, on that. So let's get to managing this patient, how to do it. I have a problem in uh, giving a uh, five, 10 minute podcast on doing an awake intubation because this really should be a, a half day course. If you need supplemental material on this, go to our online free open access book, aimairway.ca forward slash book. And uh, we have an excellent chapter on the awake intubation with tons of video, including several videos of me having laryngoscopy and ultimately me being intubated. But for the purpose of this uh, podcast, what is an awake? Let's start by what it's not. It's not giving a dose of ketamine and picking up a laryngoscope and uh, it's uh, you steal versus patient. Uh, people refer to a ketamine facilitated intubation that they call it the patient awake because their eyes are open, they're dissociated, yes, but that is not an awake intubation. I will sometimes dissociate a patient if it's indicated, but an awake intubation really is about excellent, meticulous topicalization and perhaps a little bit of anxiolysis and then having the appropriate uh, equipment and medications to take care of that patient. The primary medication you're gonna use isn't ketamine, it's lidocaine, and you have to have the appropriate preparation and dose. Where people get into problems is when they take shortcuts. If you were to ask a pilot, say, you know what, you've got a two engine and plane, and this plane apparently can fly with one engine, they're not gonna take that option of flying it with one engine, right? Um, they've got the, the right gear, they've got the right setup to take care and, of the passengers on that plane safely and they're, they're never gonna compromise. Why should we compromise and take shortcuts in looking after these patients? And we, what, we, what we do and we get in trouble and then we fail is we start using less smaller doses of lidocaine or we use different delivery equipment. And uh, the examples of that is using, uh, trying to aerosolize lidocaine or using 2% uh, lidocaine that we use to suture or using 2% gel that we use to put in catheters and that type of thing. That won't work. So what equipment do you need? Well, you need two things. One is you need a tongue depressor. In fact, you need two tongue depressors. That's it, two de tongue depressors. And then you need an atomizer. And there are various atomizers that are out there. We use the Alcove atomizer. It comes in both a 15cc and a 50cc volume type. 
The thing that's different about these is that they have a directional tip and you hook it up to your oxygen at eight liters per minute and you can control your delivery over a wider space as opposed to the 10cc syringe atomizer such as the magic atomizer it's really hard to control the volume and the distribution of the atomized lidocaine so again spend the time spend the small amount it, it, it costs to get a proper atomizer you've got your tongue depressor what are you going to use um, now from from a lidocaine perspective you're going to use five percent ointment now, 5% ointment is what you put on your t on the tongue depressor. You create a lidocaine lollipop. You put two centimeters in the distal end of that uh, tongue depressor, and you squish it up so it's up at the, uh, at the end of it. And then you put uh, 10 cc's of 4% aqueous uh, lidocaine in your atomizer. And most everybody has that in their department and their, on their ENT trays. Again, don't take shortcuts with smaller dose uh, or alternative uh, forms of, of, of lidocaine. So let's get to the procedure quickly. You have to set up your patient. And what I mean by set up your patient, the patient's sitting up, talk to them, tell them what you're doing. Say, listen, you're going to help me perform this procedure. Encourage them, you know, that you're going to be fine. You're going to be okay. Even if they're not, that's what you're going to tell them. Um, you might give them a small anxiolytic dose of something, of a benzo, um, we're talking a half milligram or a milligram of Versed. Um, just to relax them. I'm not doing it to sedate them. They're going to be part of this. They're going to hold the suction, right? And they're going to use the suction as they need it. You have to warn them about some potential badness. And that potential badness really isn't that much of a concern as long as everybody in the room knows what's going to happen. When you anesthetize the patient's airway, you lose the ability to sense the flow of air across the vocal cords. And when you have that loss, that loss sensation, you get a, this anesthetic dyspnea. I haven't seen it described. I've experienced it myself. And if the patient doesn't know it, then they'll panic. And if you don't know that, the, that it's supposed to happen, you're seeing the patient have respiratory distress, you're going to panic. So just explain, listen, you might get a little bit shorter breath during this, but it's going to be okay. You're going to pass. We'll talk you through it. You're going to put high flow oxygen on them as long as they can uh, tolerate it. And those are really the major things to, to prepare um, before you go ahead. One last thing is that you need to have everything ready to do a crash airway, to do an RSI, ultimately to access the front of the neck in case things go south. Okay, step one. I'm going to take my 10 cc's of 4% lidocaine. I'm going to ask them to open their mouth and I'm going to trap their tongue with a gauze. And I'm going to give a general spray, spray around. Just spray, 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 three, four seconds. Next, what you're going to do is you're going to take your tongue depressor and you're going to, again, trap their tongue and try to access the posterior third of the tongue, not wiping off this lidocaine, just letting the tongue depressor sit and the weight of the tongue depressor allow your lidocaine 5% to sort of melt. And you're going from side to side. And it'll take you three applications, probably 15 to 20 seconds each time in the mouth to let that two centimeters of lidocaine melt and be applied to the posterior third of the tongue and melt posteriorly down into the vallecula. Now, I, at this point, I can do laryngoscopy for the majority of patients. There will be some patients that are gagging and still aren't tolerating this. These are the people that, you know, when they brush their teeth, then they brush their molars, they gag. Those people are going to be tough. In fact, sometimes I'll ask that question um, before I start. It just tells me that, you know, it's going to be tougher than normal and I might have to apply a little more, 
bit more of an agent as I proceed. Then what I'm going to use is I'm going to use the nose as a delivery mechanism to the airway, right? So as long as the patient can cooperate, I'm going to administer the, the atomizer through that nares as I encourage them to breathe in, breathe in, breathe in, breathe in, breathe in, and that will deliver that lidocaine to the glottic inlet and ultimately to the trachea. And I'll do that three times. And then I'll give him a break, and I'll do it three times again. I'll give him a break, and I'll do it three times again. So a total of nine deliveries. Essentially, most of the time you're done, I will go in with one final spray in which I'll direct the nozzle of the atomizer down, and I'll go in and paint the posterior third of the tongue, and the epiglottis, and the glottic inlet, ideally while they take a breath in. Keep in mind, though, these droplets can be stimulating to the upper airway, and theoretically, they can go into laryngospasm, which has been described. Finally, um, after doing this last bit, the reason why I go in is I'm going in to check to see what their gag is. I'm going in pretty deep. And if they're still gagging a little bit, then I'll put a second paste application to the posterior third of their tongue. And really now, you can go in with whatever device you, you have. You can go in and do an awake with, with direct laryngoscopy, with a video laryngoscope, or the way that we prefer to do it because it's easier on the patient and it's funner for me is to do a, uh, use a flexible scope. And you can go in through the nose or you can go in through the, the mouth. Prefer to go in through the nose unless the mouth isn't uh, accessible. The challenge is, is that the mechanics of doing this is difficult. So you've, you've got to do the procedure that I just went through, which is key. But you also have to have the mechanics of doing laryngoscopy. And you're not working from the head of the bed and the patient at supine. You've got a patient that's sitting up and you're up on a stool next to them at about shoulder level with your right arm wrapped around their head. Um, ready to do uh, laryngoscopy intubation. And if you haven't done that, the mechanics feel awkward. And if the mechanics feel awkward for you, you're not likely to be very successful. So you have to practice this. You have to practice just the mechanics of doing this, and you can do it on a mannequin as you feel. My preferred tool, if I don't have the flexible scope, would probably be a hyperangulated video laryngoscope because it's less pressure on the on the tongue. The thing you have to keep in mind, you have to be really skilled in delivering the tube in this scenario because uh, it can be a challenge in the in the best of uh, of cases. And certainly sitting up in in this situation, it's it's a real challenge. So that's a lot to do, and it's probably conceptually hard to understand in a podcast. If you want to see the visual of this, go to our website. Um, aimairway.ca and watch the videos, read the text. And in order to make awaken an option, you have to do it. And you have to do it more often. The way to get more experience is start doing it on the physiologically difficult airway. I'd say 30 to 40% of my airways, I'm doing awakes and I'm doing them for the apnea intolerant patient because that gives me the skill to do it in the patient that is anatomically difficult. That's it. That's all for now. Thank you. So that's a bit about awake intubation and some key airway issues in the burn patient. I'd like to talk about smoke inhalation injury kind of more generally. We've touched on a few of the issues. What are the kind of key principles in managing the smoke inhalation injury? The one thing about smoke inhalation injury is we have no way of quantifying it. So if you have a cutaneous burn, 20% body surface area, we have ways of calculating how much fluid they're going to require. Lung injury, we have really very 
little in the way of actually quantifying. There are bronchoscopic ways. So you could choose to bron do a bronchoscopy. It's actually safe to determine that the level of your tube is in place. When the patients are transported in over long distances, the first thing that I've always done, stick a bronchoscope in to determine the placement of the tube much quicker than a chest X-ray. That's something you can do in an emergency room. If someone was intubated out in the field and they're in, it's much quicker to determine if you have any questions at all. In terms of securing the tube, in the absence of cutaneous burns, not much that's different, but if they're going to be hanging around your place and you're going to be fluid resuscitating them and they're going to swell, whatever you, however you fix them, you need to check it again. You need to go back because as they start to swell, you can start to cause problems as early as four to six hours. So if the transport's delayed and you're going to be looking at them, fluid resuscitation of smoke inhalation injury is an art, not a science, because we can't quantify the injury and you are going to need to look for the patient that is not making urine. So even though it's different than we're talking now someone without cutaneous burns, you need a way of monitoring their urine output. Of course, the blood gas, which is obvious. And the one thing that you're really looking for now that you're giving fluid, pain and sedation in order to maintain your tube vital to look for that metabolic acidosis. That unexplained metabolic acidosis is going to be the first thing that's going to clue you in that either A, you're missing cyanide or other forms of toxicity, and more commonly, that you're under-resuscitating those patients. Most common reason for a meta an early metabolic acidosis. Not all smoke inhalation injuries have to go to a burn center. They can be cared for in other general ICUs in the absence of cutaneous burns. Wow, there were so many great pearls packed in there. <laughs> so I actually didn't really think about the movement of the tube in a burn patient. As their fluid resuscitated, it's going to shift around. So that's important to secure the tube properly and keep on checking. The early metabolic acidosis as a sign of early cyanide poisoning is key. And then thirdly, uh, the greater fluid requirements, which we're going to get into detail about the fluid requirements of general burn patients and smoke inhalation patients uh, in a moment. One of the other little uh, clinical pearls, uh, uh, just a, an item of experience when you're intubating patients with smoke inhalation injury with or without the cutaneous burns, when you put the tubes in, most trauma places and most emergentologists will cut the tubes. They're used to limiting the dead space. They intubate, secure the tube, cut the tube to length, and they refashion it. You should leave those tubes long. And the reason is because if you're ever in a situation where they're going to swell as they start to swell, the, the face and the structures of the face start to swell up around the tube. And the next thing you know, if you are stuck with that patient for a number of hours, a tube that looked perfect, now for the sake of 10 cc's of dead space, you no longer have control over that tube. And that is another thing that can be easily avoided. Don't cut the tubes. Leave them long. Wow. That's a great clinical pearl. So many in this podcast so far. And we haven't even yet talked about escherotomies. So... I do want to talk about those now. You know, we've all seen this done in textbooks, but few of us, thankfully, haven't needed to perform an escherotomy in the ED. But we need to know how to do it in that rare case. So, Dr. Fish, first, what are the indications for an ED escherotomy in a burn patient? Escherotomy is cutting through the burn skin, which is now non-distensible. So as the patient swells, the proteins have been coagulated. We talked about that already and they won't move. And so if they're going to swell, it will start the first stages of compartment syndrome to the limb. So that's why you do it. And that's why they get it. The 
teaching that is 100% wrong is that it only happens in circumferential burns. I have no idea where that came from. Likely goes all the way back to World War II in an era when they had very few treatments available. But once you're fluid resuscitating a patient with a burn greater than 20, 30% body surface area in that category, and if they're going to be in your area for much longer than six to 12 hours, so you have a long time before you have to worry about this, so if they are going to be there and you can't transport them, the escherotomies are done prophylactically by people who are knowledgeable, usually in a burn center. But if they're stuck in the emergency room and you had to, what I teach is you can feel the area, if you can compare to the other side. And the other thing in a major burn, like a 50, 60% burn, nobody could ever fault you for taking a cautery or a, a scalpel, sedating a patient, and cutting through burned skin and releasing them, even if it didn't need to be done, the risk of doing it unnecessarily far outweighs the risk of missing it, which is compartment syndrome and loss of a limb. So if you sort of think of it in that way, if you're ever an emer in the emergency room and you're stuck with someone and you're really not sure, first of all, you can call. But second of all, if you've never done one, the treatment of choice and the easiest way to do this not to get yourself in trouble, you really do need to be handy with a cautery machine. And the reason is because when you cut through the burn, they will bleed and bleed and bleed. So you have to be super cautious doing this. One of the simpler techniques for areas of the limbs that say a small area that they're concerned about is I'll get them to use a local infiltrate, a local anesthetic with adrenaline, put it into the skin, let it sit for 10 minutes, and then take your blade because a lot of emergency people aren't comfortable with an electric cautery. They may not have done that. And so now you can do the same thing, but take a bit of time, put some local in the skin, more for the adrenaline than for the local, and you then cut the burned area and you will know immediately if you've done the right thing because you will cut the, that burned skin and it will just come apart. If you cut your normal skin, it just sort of sits there. I'm glad to say that you almost never are in a situation in our neck of the woods where you need to do that. And I would be consulting a, no a local burn center and someone that does this and tells you exactly what to do. All right. We do have a lot of rural listeners where, you know, you might be in the Arctic in the middle of winter and it's going to take a long time to get a, to a burn that, center. That's exactly the situation that we were in. And we've been in that situation a number of times. And we have someone who has some kind of surgical skill. And we will literally, what I have done is I've taken picture and drawn the lines, they send me a picture and I draw the lines where the cuts need to go and I send it to them. Because this is, this is a skill that sort of goes beyond what you would normally do. Recognition of a tight extremity would be in the purview of an emergency care health practitioner, whoever it is. Absolutely. So suffice to say that you're almost never going to do this prophylactically in the emergency department. No. But certainly if you see a patient who has, you know, absent or decreased pulses in a limb or they've got a new neurologic deficit or you can't ventilate them because their chest is, is so big and tight and restricted, those are the kinds of patients that you should be thinking about doing this, get on the phone, get some advice, um, and you might have to actually go ahead and do it. And of course, it's really important to be reassessing these patients regularly to make sure they're not developing a compartment syndrome. And an escherotomy is very different from a fasciotomy. Yes, thank you very much. Escar is burned skin, burned protein. Very different than a, in a trauma case where you're releasing the deep fascia because of the swelling of the muscles. Two totally different things. All right, so you're not actually you're not actually uh, cutting that deep at all. It's just the, the burned skin. skin only. Right. 
this highlights a bit of my French side that I call it an escharotomy, and you guys are calling it an escarotomy. Let's go back to our case. So we've got this 46-year-old patient. He's tachycardic. He's hypotensive. He's got a shock index over one. You know, we're all worried about this patient. Now, you know, in a straight-up trauma case, this would be worrisome enough for ongoing hemorrhagic shock requiring blood products, for example. But this patient was in a fire, so it's quite different. How does the fact that this patient was in a fire change your approach to shock in general? So we've got a fire victim. He may also have some traumatic injuries. Unlikely that he has hemorrhagic shock. Why does he have shock? And what concerns should we have in particular for this fire smoke inhalation patient? So most smoke inhalation patients won't have hypotension. But when they do, hypotension is much more worrisome for cyanide poisoning. So if you've got altered mental status plus soot in the mouth or nose, likelihood of cyanide poisoning is about 60%. And if you add hypotension to the mix or cardiac arrest, the likelihood that they have cyanide poisoning is closer to 80%. Wow. Okay. That's a great tip. So low blood pressure plus loss of consciousness. And if they've got a little bit of soot around their mouth or nose, that's almost a slam dunk for cyanide poisoning. So you can go clinically based on that. You have to assume at that point that you're dealing with some cyanide poisoning. Yeah, and if you're proving that someone had actual cyanide um, exposure, it's way too late because cyanide levels take three days to get back, and most hospitals don't do it anyways. So we now have cyano kits. Um, many paramedics carry them, and they're administered early with little problem. And I wouldn't say that it's reached a level of standard of care expected in all burn centers, but it's about as close as you can get without having full agreement by everybody. So there'll be the obvious patient that comes in in shock after a closed space fire incident, their decreased level of awareness. There's no other obvious cause for their shock. So you're thinking immediately that they are suffering from cyanide poisoning and you're going to start treating them right away. But my guess is that they're not always that obvious. What are some of the more subtle clues? What are some of the other clues that we can get from uh, our lab work and clinically uh, that this might be cyanide poisoning that we should be pulling out the kit? The most common one by the time they get to a burn center is that you've, you've had what you believe is adequate fluid resuscitation. If you still have an unexplained metabolic acidosis, the, the likelihood of a potential cyanide poisoning starts to go way up. And so some of the more subtle findings is, is, is a patient who doesn't remember necessarily what happened, they might be a bit confused or they had a period of amnesia or there's a loss of consciousness. Uh, that can actually all be from cyanide poisoning. Uh, and some of the same symptoms will overlap with your carbon monoxide poisoning. So they get the nausea, headache, uh, vomiting. And they may have medriasis on examination, but definitely with respect to your lab work, if they've got an anion gap metabolic acidosis, you're going to be thinking cyanide poisoning. If they've got a lactate greater than eight, you should be very suspicious of cyanide poisoning. So in the absence of an obvious head injury, things like amnesia for the event, that they're slow to answer and those kinds of things can be some some early clues. And then, you know, get get a VBG quickly, get your get your lactate quickly and scrutinize them really well. Because if you have someone with an isolated smoke inhalation injury uh, without an obvious other reason to have their lactate elevated, that, that elevated lactate with an anion gap metabolic acidosis is cyanide poisoning until proven otherwise. 
All right. So let's say you've got your clinical diagnosis of cyanide poisoning. You got a patient who's in shock, altered LOA, soot around the mouth. We had mentioned that sending a cyanide level is pretty useless because it won't come back for a couple of days. What about the carboxyhemoglobin level? What should we know about carboxyhemoglobin levels in terms of uh, how they change over time and how to interpret them and then how to treat our patient? This is a lot more manageable than the cyanide because the the cyanide is a bit of a blind diagnosis in many respects. So the, the carboxyhemoglobin level, first of all, you can get carboxyhemoglobin levels in many institutions relatively quickly. And the only thing that you really need to do to interpret it is remember that the half-life on a high level of oxygen, you need to know what the inspired oxygen is, will be anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes, which is not uncommon from the time that they're picked up at the scene, if they have a decreased level of consciousness, trapped in a closed space, you don't have the level, but they've now been intubated and put on 100% oxygen and brought in, that often is 30 to 45 minutes. So now when you get your carboxyhemoglobin level back and it says 30, and if you were to extract and you know that the half that you've, you're now well around the half-life of what it was, it was likely well into the toxic range, which is in the high, anything above 35% is significant, 30, 35%. And now it's like more than double normal. So the comfort in this area is that Treatment is simple. Often they're getting the treatment anyways, and you sort of use the level to kind of guide you based on how long they've had their oxygen. Think of it as therapy. Right. And the level could also be affected if you've already given them hydroxycobalamin. So that's an important thing to remember is that that can affect a lot of your lab results. So ideally, if you can draw the sample before it was given, but if that's going to delay your antidote, just go ahead and give it. All right. Well, that that actually segues very nicely into the treatment for cyanide poisoning. You know, let's say we have a good idea that this patient has cyanide poisoning clinically. How do we actually treat it? You had mentioned hydroxycobalamin. Uh, What do we need to know about this drug? So it's essentially a precursor of B12 that binds the cyanide and then gets excreted in the urine. It's a very safe medication. The dose is five grams given over 15 minutes. And you can give a second dose. And I actually previously ran this by our EM cases talks expert, uh, Dr. Emily Austin. As many of us aren't so clear as when we should be sort of giving that second dose, like what kind of signs and symptoms are we looking for? So she expects us to see improvement within 15 minutes. If that patient is not becoming more stable, their hypotension is not improving, their GCS is not improving, or they've got ongoing dysrhythmias, then absolutely they should get their second dose. But if things are improving at that point, um, you can hold off. And in terms of downsides of using hydroxycobalamin, I mean, we're going to be using this on spec because, you know, it's a kind of a clinical diagnosis and sometimes the diagnosis isn't that clear. Sometimes we might we might pull out the hydroxycobalamin based on sort of a soft suspicion what are there much in the way of downsides? So not really. It's pretty safe. Uh, the most common side effects are red urine for about five weeks. Um, you can get also red skin for several weeks. Um, it can cause an elevated blood pressure, nausea, and there are rare cases of acute renal failure. But most of that's very uncommon. Uh, so for the most part, it's very safe. And just remember that it can interfere with some of your lab tests, uh, particularly your chemistry, your CBC, coags, uh, your carboxyhemoglobin, and your urine. Okay. So to simplify all this all, you have a patient with a smoke inhalation injury. Anyone with a smoke inhalation injury is going to be getting non-rebreather oxygen as high as you can get it from the outset. That'll treat their carbon monoxide. 
just remember that uh, the timing of the carbon monoxide draw, uh, you have to think about the half-life of carbon monoxide when there's oxygen blaring into their airway. And if they have an altered level of awareness or they're in shock or any of the soft things like amnesia and the absence of head injury, it's probably safe to go ahead and give the hydroxycobalamin five grams is the first dose. And if they're deteriorating after that, you'll get the, get the second dose. My guess is that quite a few emergency departments still have the old cyanide antidote kits. Can you just explain to us a little bit about why we shouldn't be using the old cyanide kits? So the old antidote kits for cyanide poisoning contain sodium thiosulfate, amyl nitrite, and sodium nitrite. These kits were actually discontinued in Canada in 2012, and they were replaced by the safer cyano kits, so the ones with the hydroxycobalamin. So one of the problems with the old kits is that the sodium nitrite actually works by forming methemoglobin. So the methemoglobin will chelate the cyanide, but if you already have carboxyhemoglobin in your bloodstream from carbon monoxide poisoning, the methemoglobin is even further reducing your oxygen carrying capacity. So you definitely want to avoid sodium nitrate in, in cases of both carbon monoxide and cyanide poisoning. Now, if you've got a case of carbon monoxide poisoning and cyanide poisoning and you don't have access to the hydroxycobalamin, you can give the tho- sodium thiosulfate portion. It won't work as well. It's a little slower to work. So in our 46-year-old smoke inhalation patient, we've secured the airway, we've made a presumptive diagnosis of cyanide and carbon monoxide poisoning, we've treated with hydroxycobalamin, and now we're looking at fluid resuscitating the patient. Burn is an inflammatory event, different than hemorrhagic shock. So it sets up, uh, through its pathophysiology, inflammation and leaky capillaries everywhere in your body except the blood-brain barrier. So your muscles, your fat, every organ in your body leaks, not just where the burn is. And so we're giving fluid based on a formula, which is a starting point. And that's where these formulas came from. It's a starting point that represents fluid that you are going to need in order to maintain yourself due to the inflammatory nature of the burn. When you add smoke inhalation injury, people add what we call a fudge factor, somewhere between 20 and 30% above that which is predicted by the formulas themselves. And it's just a starting point. And it's based on the fact that we can't really measure smoke inhalation injury. We know they always require more fluid. And we take whatever formula it is that you want to use. They range between sort of two and four cc's per kilo per percent body surface area burn. And we add anywhere around 20 25% on top of that, depending on the severity of the injury, and we watch how they do with their resuscitation. So that's a little bit about how fluid resuscitation in the burn patient is different than the usual blunt or penetrating trauma patient. You had mentioned the formulas. My understanding is that uh, we shouldn't be using the Parkland formula anymore, that there's the modified Brook Parkland formula. So Dr. Ivankovic, could you explain to us how this new formula works and why the Parkland formula is kind of passe. 
So I think all of us remember the Parkland formula because it's really what most of us have been using for years. And that's the four milliliters per kilo ringer's lactate per percent body surface area. Half is given over the first eight hours from the time of the burn, not from the time your patient showed up to the eMERGE, and the second half over the next 16 hours. So traditionally, we were all really worried about under-resuscitating patients, but more and more we're realizing that over-resuscitation can be just as harmful. So many burn centers are no longer using that classic four cc's per kilo and have moved as low as two cc's per kilo. And so the two cc's per kilo is um, known as the modified Brook formula. And there's variation from burn centers. I think it's important to know what your burn center is doing. So even across Canada, you'll see differences. There's some burn centers that are using two, some that are using three. But the bottom line, as Joel has said, is this is just a starting point. So Really, it's only going to calculate what you're going to use for the first hour because past that point, you're going to be calculating it based on your urine output. So as soon as this patient comes in, they should be getting, for a massive burn, they should be getting a Foley so you can closely monitor their urine output. So for adults, we're going to be aiming for a urine output of 30 to 50 cc's. Um, And for kids, Joel? So children, the recommendation based on urine output is a half to one cc per kilo. And for the children under a year of age, you'd need to add some sugar. It has to do with their metabolism. And so we will give their maintenance in the form of a D5 half normal saline and run that along with the Ringer's lactate. And I just want to point out, Joel, uh, it was a very important point about not bolusing these patients. Um, So bolus is likely to force a large volume of fluid out of the vessels into inflamed tissue, and that can cause more edema and cause greater risk of compartment syndrome. So what you really want to do is adjust your fluid on an hourly basis by increasing it by 20 to 30% or decreasing it by 20 to 30%, but don't bolus them if they're not making the urine output you're expecting to see. Burn shock is very different from other forms of shock or intravascular volume depletion. It is something that happens because of the leaky capillaries. The capillary leak is there. It will be there for 24, 48, or 72 hours. That's the basis of these formulas. Why you give a higher rate of fluid, you tend not to bolus them. It's because it's a slow, sustained, inflammatory response with a predictable rise and fall over the 24, 48, and 72 hours. So that's why we don't bolus the patients and we adjust the rate. It's worth mentioning to remember that these patients are often tachycardic in the 120s, even when they are getting adequate fluids. So don't don't necessarily look at that as a sign that they need more fluids and be tempted to bolus them. And the other thing you want to be really cautious about is using pressors in these patients. So they will peripherally vasoconstrict, so reduce circulation to their burns, and that can deepen the burns. Absolutely. The basic treatment in the resuscitation in the emergency room for the first four hours, four to six hours, let's use that as a guide, would be pain medication, which can affect the resuscitation, but you need to get them comfortable. So you're going to be treating them. You need to fluid resuscitate them. And crystalloid is what is used in North America and most parts of the world. And that is what you need. You need a high rate of crystalloid fluid and get them to the burn center. All the use of pressors and all those things, it starts to get a lot more controversial, the use of colloids, et cetera. But that's really well past. That's now we're getting into the burn care in the burn unit. And I don't think it's really part of this discussion. All right. So the key points there are Use ringers lactate in an adult. In a kid, you're going to add D5, so maybe D5 ringers in kids. Try to avoid bolusing the fluid. 
you're using not the classic Parkland formula, which was four cc's times the percent body surface area per kilogram, but you're using this new modified formula, which is two cc's, but it can be up to four cc's in a smoke inhalation victim. And remember that this is a starting point only, and you're going to be doing frequent checks for all the usual signs of end organ perfusion, urine output, level of awareness, et cetera. And then if you can, try and avoid pressors in these patients as well. We all know as emergency physicians, we don't want to under-resuscitate patients. But I want to kind of drive home the point of the harms of over-resuscitating these burn patients in particular. Dr. Fish, why is it such a big concern that we shouldn't be over-resuscitating these patients? So... There are a lot of things that over-resuscitation, a lot of negative consequences to over-resuscitation. So probably the number one issue relates to in the children, you will induce metabolic disturbances, which can take a day or two to correct. And as purely as a result of over-resuscitation, usually related to sodium. So you can see sodium levels dropping hugely low and consequences of seizures. And, and that's actually not that uncommon in over-resuscitation, particularly in the young children. In the older group, you will have the early consequences, early consequences of over-resuscitation, which include uh, the tightening of the compartments, all the compartments, but more importantly, the pulmonary. So you get fluid that it, that will be sequestered into the lungs early. And now you take someone who could might've otherwise been extubated comfortably and treated. Now you have intubated them and they've bought the tube, rates of ventilator-associated pneumonia and the subsequent results of that, you've now opened that door. So those are just a few of the problems that we see. We tend not to see them within the first couple of hours, but they start to manifest within the first 24 and 48 hours post-injury. To recap here, we're using this modified Brook slash Parkland formula uh, which we'll have in the show notes for you. And briefly, it's for burns greater than 15% body surface area in kids and greater than 20% body surface area in adults. We're going to start with Ringer's lactate. For the straight-up burn patients, it's probably going to be around 2 milliliters times the percent body surface area times the weight in kilograms. And that's, again, just a starting point. Try not to bolus. Try not to give pressors if you can help it. And don't forget that little kids need some D5 in there as well. We're going to be titrating to the usual signs of organ perfusion. And the bottom line is that over-resuscitation is just as harmful as under-resuscitation and that we shouldn't just sort of order up your formula and forget about the patient. It's really important to titrate those fluids, again, to adequate end-organ perfusion. I want to talk about temperature a little bit. Most of these burn patients will have had cool water poured over their burns. They're getting room temperature IV fluids. They might be getting wet dressings. If anything, this is going to cool the patient. And that's not necessarily good unless they're cardiac arrest, which almost never happens in a burn patient that we're actually resuscitating in the emergency department. So Dr. Fish, how do you maintain normothermia in the face of all our hypothermic treatments that we're giving so for the burn patient? Burn patients are at particular risk for hypothermia because they've lost the ability to thermoregulate, 
We give them narcotics, which are important for the pain, which also reduces your ability to thermoregulate. Coupled on top of that, you have at both ends of the spectrum, you have elderly patients who don't thermoregulate as well, and you have young patients who, as a baseline, don't thermoregulate as well. So when you take all of that together, and if you add a 15 or 20% burn in any age group, they're at high risk to develop hypothermia. So what are the things we can do? So when they get to the emergency room, the number one thing that you can do is if you are lucky enough to have an emergency room where you can warm the environment, that is the number one thing you can do that will make a difference. The number two thing you can do if you're not in a fancy emergency room and you're stuck in the middle of nowhere is take warm, dry blankets and cover the patient and stop irrigating them. So rather than treat their pain with fluid, which is first aid, you know, in the ambulances and whoever they drag in the little kid and they're putting water all over them, dry them off, cover them up. And rather than treat them with fluid that that helps with the pain as a first aid measure, give them morphine. And think of that all as a treatment for the hypothermia. What about prophylactic antibiotics? I remember the days that we almost reflexively gave IV antibiotics for all burn patients. Is there any evidence that oral or IV antibiotics given in the hospital improves burn patient outcomes? So the simple answer is no. There is no evidence to support the use of prophylactic antibiotics. In fact, several studies have found that they may promote systemic fungal infections. They are 100% contraindicated. 100% contraindicated in major burn patients. Major burn patients have a 100% incidence of contamination of their wounds because your skin always has commensal organisms. Staph aureus, E. coli, Enterobacter live all over our ears, our eyes, our nose, our mouth, etc. So the commensal organisms are there. If you give IV antibiotics early to burn, major burn patients, you will breed and make the way for resistant organisms earlier period. So they are contraindicated, prophylactic antibiotics. In the small minor burn patients that come in, they're also not required, but they're not as contraindicated because the uh, bacteriology and because they're smaller areas is not as problematic, but they 100% are no clinical indication to give antibiotics prophylactically. Tell us what you really think, Joel. <laughs> I was going to say, I love his passion. Pretty, pretty specific about that. <laughs> okay. And, and, so that's and a definite no. This is, this, is a, this is one of those areas where when it's you sit down clarify. and you have the emergency room on one side and think of myself in the burn center, and now I'm looking at the patient two weeks later, the treatment of multi-resistant organisms in a, in a burn unit is like a whole other chapter that we talk about. And we know that when they're given these antibiotics and now we're dealing with this issue, it is it, the practical implications of our care. It just takes a difficult situation and compounds it hugely. Real risks for the patient. I think we're ready to talk a little bit more about uh, disposition of the burn patient. We had mentioned about uh, which patients are safe not to send to a burn center when we talked about our, our first case. And we know that more than 90% of burn wounds can be successfully managed in an outpatient setting. That leaves us with, you know, about 10% that need to be admitted, and usually it's to a burn center. So, Dr. Fish, two questions. One is, first, when should we pick up the phone and consult our closest burn center? 
And then second, what are sort of the general criteria for admission? I'm going to answer the second question first because the general criteria are very easy. So burn size gets you to a burn center, 15% in a child, 20% because those cannot be managed outside of a burn center. Those are easy criteria. Any of the special burns, electrical burns, chemical burns, specialized skin problems that are related like frostbite, which also go to burn centers, because all of the care that's required for nutrition, pain, and resuscitation are exactly the same. They're highly specialized areas. They need to go to a burn center. And then the last obvious and easy criteria are the specialized areas, the hands, the face, the feet and the perineum. These are extremely painful areas. They require special resources of nursing care, pain control. They defunction the patients hugely, even though they're small. So those are like the minimum absolute criteria that you need to send them. And then the next level are, and this is particularly true for the children, children with burns need to be seen and assessed in a place that has resources that are appropriate for pediatric patients. The drugs, the food, the socialization, what happens to a family when a child is burned is a very unique and requires that care. So that's the reasons why, that's question number two, that's the reasons why you send them. You can never go wrong to pick up the phone and call because there are times when what you see in the emergency room, and I think we really stressed this early on, that what you see is not what you get. And what that patient is going to be dealing with three and five days later is often a lot different than how they present to the emergency room. That about wraps it up for this podcast. In part two with Dr. Fish and Dr. Ivankovic, we'll discuss the ins and outs of electrical injuries, which are a different kettle of fish from burn and inhalation injuries. There are, again, many nuances in management that will determine your patient's outcomes. On another note, in between the main episode podcasts, if you're looking for short blasts of golden education, listen to the fairly new EM Quick Hits podcast wherever you get your EM Cases podcasts. It's a series of five-minute segments from a variety of experts on particular EM topics, everything from resuscitation to peds to ortho to EBM and more. So until next time... Take it easy.